the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. This movie was stacked casting wise. Like they stuck like way bigger names in roles that were like just beneath them. Like they appear for like two seconds. Like Casey Affleck, that whole Yeah. I'm like, that's all you're gonna use Casey Affleck for? Dude, I need to talk to you about Casey Affleck's character. I find that guy insane. Oh uh, yeah. Did you do you like did you learn more about the real person? Not the real person, but I just like this I saw it twice. I saw Oppenheimer twice. I don't know if I mention that oh um, no no that's awesome so i like was able to digest a lot of things better the second time around and casey affleck i bet yeah casey affleck's character is one of the ones who i just forgot about the first time mm-hmm. like i remember that he was in it but i don't remember like who he was or what he was doing um and it's really interesting uh the character but uh yeah oppenheimer yeah you know that guy uh just like to give you like the real life uh, context for that guy um like you know like in this time period of american history that the cia was like doing all this like secret covert shit sure have you, have you heard about like the assassination attempts on fiddle castro that the cia like they basically tried to kill him no i mean i i feel like i have like a kind of a vague awareness of that but i don't know mm-hmm. anything yeah. about it really uh, yeah and that's all i knew. i've heard about this vaguely but there was like a plot to kill him from his cigar like that's the most memeable okay. part of this history, um, exploding cigar assassination. This the Casey Affleck was like the guy that was in charge of the, you know, whatever division of the CIA. Okay, did got that. it. So this is a guy that like probably like was behind killing a lot of people. Well, in the his whole scene uh, where they're like explaining who he is. And Matt Damon's basically saying, like, this dude is, like, known in Washington for, like, killing and torturing people. Yeah. Like, his whole MO is, like, cruelty and, like, getting the information that he needs at, like, uh, by any means necessary. He's, like, mm-hmm. and e- like, even in the circles of, like, upper echelon, super covert, like, government, he's, like, known as, like, this 
like scary guy and i assume and i assume that's all based off of uh like real information real guy and so i don't know that just makes it even scarier to me yeah there was this there was this psychopath essentially that was in the government and even people within the government were were like yeah that dude is like a psychopath like our our government is like pretty tame for the most part like we're not like a a, like a dictatorial government that just like outright tortures and kills well at least we delegate that down to like several layers of abstraction down but like this is the one guy in the government where like we're just like that guy is allowed to kill and torture yeah yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, that yeah. guy, right? That's that's our guy. Did you do the the Barbenheimer thing? Not in the same day. How close were they together? Not too close, like maybe a week and a half apart. I watched the first one and um, watched Oppenheimer here in the first one, like their sequels or something. Yeah, <laughs> but I watched that here in you know California near Berkeley, where a lot of it takes place. And then I watched Barbie in in Mexico when I was there. Oh, that was in, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'd have never watched a movie in like a foreign country or like a non-English speaking country. Where's was the movie itself still in English and had subtitles, or what was? Yeah, that's what it was just, exactly. Okay, I'm not sure if that's the regular way they do it. Like, I'm actually I'm actually not sure. I think it's like if you have like a movie that is specifically marketed for like international audiences that you as a studio like spend money to have it dubbed by a Mm -hmm. different studio but if not you probably just like pay someone else to just like put subtitles on it right that that'll Um, be good enough if it's an animated movie it's a children's movie i think they'll probably dub i'm guessing Mm. but for this kind of thing and i feel like even like if you're just a like a a mexican living in mexico like you don't want to go watch a movie and have all of the main actors' voices be dubbed over. Right. You know, because you're right. just like, you're missing that part of the performance. Right. Yeah. As much as I love the Spanish dubbers, like I grew up like with my dad, like him watching like the Spanish channels where they take all the American movies and dub it over. Yeah. It's just like the same crew of voice actors that do everything. Oh, really? And as much as I love those guys, like, I didn't realize that that was such a small like industry of people, at least sure, in Mexico. Sure. That's super funny. The same guy who does like Arnold Schwarzenegger is like the same person who does like Robin Williams in a different, <laughs> in a different movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like definitely too- like the main lead actor guy. Mm-hmm. Just to get our uh, obligatory Dragon Ball Z reference in early. I saw something about Dragon Ball Z recently and one of the comments was, oh, it was a voiceover thing. It was like footage from like Sean Schemmel, the guy who plays Goku, like in the studio recording some lines and, you know, like breaking his vocal cords like he usually does. Mm -hmm. And all the comments were just like better than the original, (laughs) like better, like better than the original Japanese. And like, I don't know how Dragon Ball Z fans like fall on the spectrum of like, hardcore anime fans but i feel like that's not normally the case where they're like yeah the american guy who's dubbing this did it better it's probably just associated with their childhood exactly so did you like barbie we don't need to talk about barbie the whole time but i just want to know like baseline i liked it i will get into it some more but i i mean i like barbie more than i liked oppenheimer really yeah interesting okay 
I feel like Barbie's pretty divisive. But it's at least like a colorful, enjoyable, uh, super funny movie. I mean, it's like a, you know, it keeps the laugh rolling throughout visual humor and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, I've, I've found myself like laughing quite a bit during it. You were I laughing probably, at it. I was laughing at the absurdity of it. I don't think I'll watch it again, like for its comedic value. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I keep I kept comparing it to Elf, which I feel very similarly about with its comedy. Where I think if I maybe had seen Elf or Barbie when I was like eighteen, I'd be like, "This is the funniest shit like ever made." And uh-huh. watching it now, I'm just like, I I see what's going on, and I'm amused by it one time. One time. And that's that's interesting because this is not about Elf, but I feel like Elf is like so rewatchable. Will Ferrell. It's like the same uh, thing as as Barbie, just in terms of tone, I would uh-huh. say, and then also just set pieces. Like they go to a different world. Like the like magic exists. Like the rules of the universe are never explained. It doesn't really matter. It's got kind of like an old. Remember that thing from like the '90s and like early 2000s where like magic was just like present, like ever present. It didn't matter like where it came from. Yeah, it didn't need to be explained by like a physicist. So both of them have that, and then both are have Will Ferrell, and they kind of mirror like a lot of Will Ferrell style like comedy. But yeah, you're probably right. Like Elf is a little bit more rewatchable. I was just talking about Elf recently because I was watching Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hmm. Zoe Deschanel's in both. Yeah, she's a blonde in Elf, which is really bizarre because she. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she doesn't look. She doesn't even look like herself in that movie. Like she's borderline unrecognizable in Elf yeah, versus yeah. anything else. But uh, but I digress. Um, we digress. We digressed. Barbenheimer. Oh, yeah, no, enjoy, enjoyed, enjoyed Barbie. Uh, Oppenheimer like had me like really, like I had a really hard time with Oppenheimer like finishing it, and I think that's because I'm in a very specific demo for that movie where like. Yeah, I am a scientist. Like I know the science of what of what they're talking about very intimately, and like it's very exciting for me because all of those people that were in the movie and all those scientists were like very foundational for the field of yeah uh, physics and chemistry. Uh, so I can like geek out on that. Um, and I also read the book that the movie is based on, American Prometheus. Yeah, so I had all that background. So it's just it, it's kind of a little bit. Of, I'm bringing a little bit of that like the movie is not as good as the book energy to this. Yeah. For a few reasons. I, I found myself thinking about like your perspective a lot, like while watching the movie, like you specifically. Um, because I was like, I bet I I bet Raul like knows who some of these people are or understands on a better level like what they're talking about. Um, probably even has some criticisms of the way that it's portrayed. I also just know that you like are really romantic about academia and like just like the culture of like uh high level academics sure, um, sure especially ones that like move the world in uh specific ways and then even more specifically you know it's like at berkeley it's like right next door to you so like i feel right, like it's right. i felt like the the first act where you're sort of like hanging out in berkeley with all these people in there like classrooms and it's like the 40s and everyone's like smoking and looks really cool i'd thought about you i'm like i bet raul just thinks this looks awesome 
Yeah. Even yeah. if he has some critical things to say about it. Uh-huh. No, that I absolutely do love. Like, I love the representation of, um, like, the academics of that time. And uh, the, the guy, so uh, Lawrence, Ernesto Lawrence. Which one's the he? Movie. I forget what, what his role in the movie is, but he is the guy that founded Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Okay. He's like the founder of the cyclotron. And that's where I worked up until recently. That was my workplace. Oh, yeah. There you go. And they even have a cool scene in the movie uh, where they're like talking about unionizing. Mm-hmm. That's a big and part of the movie overall is the pol- politics and unions. Sure, sure. Well, I think the union thing doesn't take up too much time. But... I see the I put the union like kind of the same category as like uh like the red scare stuff that happens yeah throughout. yeah, yeah. Like, but, but there's one continue. scene in particular where they're like they want to unionize at the lab and then Ernesto Lawrence the founder of the lab is like super mad okay I know who you're talking about now he's kind of like the he's kind of like the dreamy scientist out of all of them he's like tall and broad shoulders yeah he's like super good looking for some reason yeah yeah um but and i but so the reason i brought that up is because like last year at the lab and across the whole state and the uc academic system there was like these big labor strikes as well and uh when i participated in those last year they were like you know i was on the pick and line and there were like people you know talking to us through the megaphone and uh they like told a story about how like the last time there was like union kind of labor stuff going on at the lab was back when it was founded around this time wow and that and they were like oh and the founder of the lab who's like against the unions and we're like boo when was this was this like pre uh oppenheimer sort of um hype like on the internet yeah yeah okay because surely if they had talked about that beforehand they would have been like Anybody like through the megaphone? Anybody seen the movie Oppenheimer? Remember that guy? That guy sucks. But if it happened well before, it just wasn't in anyone's consciousness that Oppenheimer would be about the same thing. Right. It also, at that time, they had filmed on campus, so like at that time, there had been a story about some pictures circulating of of the production cool. crew on campus. That's cool. I feel like Oppenheimer really like. I mean, it's related to what we were talking about with Barbie in what everyone else who has a podcast has been talking about like the those two movies you know they created this weird like social phenomena where everyone decided they were going to go to the movies many of whom were going to see both right and the two movies themselves you know they're good movies but they're not like game changers by any means it's it's just a phenomenon like i don't really understand like what happened where everyone collectively on the internet was like we're all gonna go to the movies and watch this i would love to just like have somebody study this and just read a book about how this kind of social contagion happens i'm sure someone's already on it i'm sure someone's like breaking it down right now someone already probably decided to make their thesis about that like barbenheimer I'm sure. And yeah, just in general, um, you know, like my connection to the movie, it, it's such interesting history too. The level of interesting that that movie has in so many ways is just off the charts. Like it connects with historically, it connects with World War II, a yeah. uh, very ripe era for movies and nuclear bombs, <laughs> communism. 
Yes. Yes. I mean, it was like arguably the most transformative period in human history. Yeah. Uh, so transformative that like making the nuclear bomb was like, you know, first page news for a week. Right. I, I feel like many people don't even know who Oppenheimer was. You know, I, as Christopher Nolan, like, has pointed out, like, in every single press interview that he's done and explicitly in the movie itself, uh, Oppenheimer is the most important person who has ever lived, you know, which I find, I find that, uh, that line to be a little tired at this point. Like, okay, I get it. Like, like he, when Matt Damon gave it in the movie, this is the most important thing that could possibly happen right now. They use the word important a lot in the movie and then like christopher nolan himself in like interviews uses the word important a lot to the point of where like i'm like okay i i get it he invented the like the nuclear bomb and like the world is different because of it also it's not in a lot of ways you know it's just we live in a time of like nuclear stalemate so just functionally it's it's kind of the same you know, I'm just like bitching about. Uh, I feel like Christopher Nolan just says that too much. <laughs> I feel like he's talking about it too much. And in the movie, yeah, the, this is the most important fucking thing. I'm interested in what you've thought about the textual uh, references to the science in the movie. Oh, like when when they're literally talking about like what's going on with the science behind it all, since you are learned in this field like was it accurate did it sound like they were like skipping around uh yeah i was disappointed in the way the science was portrayed like too much glossing over not but you got to understand that like i would have loved a movie that was all that right just like in the in you're the in Los a... Alamos lab and with them like hearing them talk about um yeah you're in a unique situation like i know that you're a geek about all that stuff so you would have loved to had anything more than what the movie was giving to you but it has to at the end of the day appeal to mainstream audiences it's also a lot but of I wanted problems to... i have with the movie are based on the book as well like i think the book has a lot of the, what the movie is is related to what the book is about okay so like the more book than half has the book... the book has weaknesses as well what you're yeah, saying yeah okay like so much of the book is related to um like all the shit that happened afterwards and mm -hmm. all of the political issues that he had and like the character assassination involving his ties with communism which i found so uninteresting mainly because like most of the charges against them were kind of trumped up charges they were they bullshit they um, were bullshit and that's what the third act of the movie is really about is that the right, whole trial right. was kind of like a, a farce Right, right. And that's a lot of the book, but it's so boring because like all that really happened is that one time somebody approached Oppenheimer and they were like, like, if you have anything like that you would like me to relay to our Russian allies, um, you know, I, I have some channels that you can go through. And then Oppenheimer was like, no, I would never do that. That's treason. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I find the whole like, strauss like the the third act narrative where it really starts to focus on the trial and strauss uh robert downey jr's character and how he was feeling he felt vindictive towards oppenheimer and that was 
that was basically like the MacGuffin of the whole like last third of the movie. The first time I watched it, I did not understand like why Robert Downey Jr. Jr.'s character was upset, what he truly had to do with the trial. And subsequently I wasn't even interested in any of it. Mm-hmm. So it, it may, it makes sense that like a big chunk of the book is that because it sounds like Christopher Nolan wanted to be pretty faithful, like to the book. And it sounds like that's a pretty big part of the book, but it it's so like by comparison, so small and like boring compared to like everything leading up to like the Trinity test and the, the bombs being hauled away. It's like, okay, now let's talk about like Oppenheimer's really kind of like nuanced, like political issues. Like after that, that were ultimately pretty short lived. It's like, like, why is this like, like, why is this one third of the movie (laughs) about atomic bombs? The movie like famously, I think kind of decided to not dwell too much on the Trinity test. Like it wasn't so much of a climax of the movie at that point. Like, mm-hmm. um, like a lot of people have commented about how the explosion doesn't look that big and it's just like not that cool of a scene overall. That was it, my uh, first takeaway. Like the very first thing I said after the movie was like the explosion wasn't that great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because like every, all the media and it's probably not the fault of Christopher Nolan, but it's like the marketing for the whole thing was like uh, it's all about the explosion. Like you got to go see it in IMAX so you can watch an atomic bomb go off in the most spectacular way. <laughs> And I honestly wouldn't even recommend anyone see it at IMAX. I don't think that the movie benefits that much from from IMAX at all. Yeah, yeah. That uh, scene in particular is certainly not, and really nothing else in the movie would warrant. It's all dialogue. It's all dial. It's a bunch of guys in rooms, small rooms, talking. Uh, small rooms. <laughs> <laughs> so that like really wasn't the focus. And God, I just I find it boring. The whole Strauss thing. I mean, I think it sucks what happened to him, but he was, and it's like a very interesting to like learn about how essentially like how, how he was going against the grain of what was going on at the time. Like he, like right off the bat, politically, politically, he's like, even before they detonated the bomb in Japan, Oppenheimer thought that what we should do is to just come out in the open to our, to the Russians and say, we have this weapon let's collaborate on this so we don't kill each other. What he didn't want to happen is what did happen where like each side kind of gets dug in and it creates this nuclear arms race. I do find like the aftermath where he lobbied for, you know, international control of nuclear weapons. Pretty interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Cause that's like, that seems like kind of the best option. (laughs) I mean, I don't know, but as far as as far as I can tell, it seems like a pretty responsible move on his part, right? To at right. least try to get like the world government involved. Someone someone in another podcast mentioned something about like maybe something similar will happen with like AI, like as AI evolves, like they want to like give the United Nations like control over the technology. I'm not really sure how that would work, but. Mm-hmm. Someone made that comparison. It's what we should do, but we clearly have no ability to do that. Yeah. To responsibly like govern or control. The cat's out of the bag. Cat's out of the bag. The genie's out of the bottle. Okay, so skimming over the science. What do you think of the imagery 
like kind of in the first 20 minutes or so when he's like an apprentice or like a whatever he is he's like younger and he's learning under some professors and he's learning more about like quantum theory and he's like lying awake at night and he has these like visions of what i assume are like electro electrons like all, zooming like all those particle things zooming around yeah just sort of the abstract like imagery of quantum physics like what do you what do you think about how those are represented i, I didn't understand it at all I, it didn't do anything for me i thought it was then, pretty pretty interesting you like looking at it yeah i, I mean i i think it's a little cheesy uh, it is cheesy that's what i, I think I think it's a little cheesy where he's literally like uh, like an emo kid, like in his dorm room bed, like looking up at the ceiling and he sees like and like the a vision of an atom like floating around. But, you know, I don't know how else I would do it and make it seem kind of I understand what Christopher Nolan is like trying to do. He's like this guy is, you know, learning something about like the the secrets of the universe for the lack of a better term like he's learning about like the way that the world works in a way that like 99 percent of people don't mm -hmm. like, and he wants to represent that visually and i'll say this right after i watched the movie the first time i said that the way the movie deals with like scientists as a like group of people, it treats them as sort of as this like removed class of keepers of, of knowledge, not unlike fucking wizards in like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The scene where Einstein and Oppenheimer are literally just like walking around like in the woods or near a lake and they're talking about like this unknown technology that will change the world and it will change the fate of things is like the exact same thing as Gandalf and Saru. Saruman like walking through Isengard talking about the world is changing and the enemy yeah. has, has come back. And so Christopher Nolan loves the idea that scientists are these like unknowable like keepers of secret knowledge. And then I listened to an interview with him where he literally talked about Oppenheimer as like a an apprentice magician. Yeah, yeah. Now that comes uh, through for sure. And so like Back to the, you know, he's seeing visions of, of atoms. It is like a little silly, but I understand what he's trying to communicate where it's just like, look at these guys, look at these like amazing guys, like discovering like these secrets and look how like magical it seems to them. Sure, sure. So in that, for that reason, I, I, I like it, but I also, mm -hmm. I don't know how you would do it and not, it not be cheesy. So that's my, that's my only takeaway. I wonder if there's a way to make a compelling scene like around a blackboard with scientists just kind of like no going off on theory. No, there's not. That's like, not this changes everything. That's not interesting. Like baseline. You know that scene from a serious man where like he's like a quantum chemistry professor or something in that movie, right? I thought he was just like a math professor or something. It might have been I think I think it was physics. Um oh, okay. But, you know, there's like the scenes of his dream where he's standing in the classroom in front of a just humongous blackboard with scribbles all over it. It's been a while since been I a while. saw a serious man, but rings a bell. But just something like that. But to the point of like them being wizards and whatnot, like that's so warranted considering what they would deliver. And like considering the fact that quantum mechanics, what they call the new physics, which I think is such an interesting 
phrase that they use had only existed for like a couple of decades max. What was really interesting is, and I only, I wasn't really aware of this, but like, you know, at the time, like Einstein was still a guy, still like hanging out in places, but he's based on the movie and I assume the book, he was sort of like old, old news at that point. He's yeah. like old old school, like the popular or really important science of the time, like had surpassed him in most ways. Uh-huh. And so he's like sort of this afterthought to these guys. Like yeah. Einstein, the people, the guy who most people associate with, you know, the smartest person who ever lived and like changed the world with just his theories to these guys. They were like, ah, that guy's like, you know, he, he was okay, but you know, he's, getting kind of old and i don't think he really gets it anymore yeah um you'll you'll hear that like i've heard that kind of take before on him like he was resistant to quantum mechanics for whatever reason and i don't know i guess it just give him a bad reputation but the movie really did him dirty they like they made him so frumpy yeah just just this like sweatpants wearing older man he seemed like a guy who was like hat everywhere well into retirement right right yeah yeah, no, that was that was crystal from the movie. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, they definitely didn't make him seem like this great mind. It, it almost seemed Not like it takes. Yeah, it it almost seems like it takes. You know, there there are those like silly photos of Einstein with like his like tongue sticking out and like every time like every mad scientist in pop culture is based off of Einstein because of like his wild hair, his like wild like uh, white hair. But, like, I have to assume that his hair did not look like that 90% of the time. That there was just, like, there's a few images of Einstein that really stuck and calcified in, like, pop culture's, like, perception of him. And it seemed like the movie just kind of leaned into that. It didn't yeah. really spend any time dealing with who that guy might actually have been. It was just, like, here's a caricature of, of Einstein. Which yeah. makes him seem even more like kind of this silly wizard character who lives in the woods. But like to the point of scientists at that time being wizards, like, God, they so were. I would agree. See, I don't I don't feel the same way about like just scientists in general. Like I don't I don't today today uh, or just, you know, across disciplines, like sure. not not any scientists for just like the sake of being a scientist is not granted this made up title of wizard that we're talking no, no, about no, no, right no. now. It's specifically like, these scientists because they were on to something like a uh, particular. Right. They were it, on the they, cusp of something. Right. They like, they unlocked like a, a piece of the universe that was like yeah. unknown to humans beforehand. Do you know how long it took them to make the nuclear bomb? Like between Oppenheimer being tapped to lead this project and them exploding the bomb, like a year, like two years, two years, okay. But that's so, no time at all. The movie does a really good job of making the process of building the bomb feel like a, a literal race. Like it, for whatever reason, like the when it gets to like the Trinity part, which is just kind of the second act of the movie, I think, where it's kind of turns into like a heist movie where it's just like let's recruit some scientists and there's like a montage of like matt damon and killian murphy like on the train just like going across the country like rounding up scientists it's mm -hmm. like straight up like a heist movie 
and then like everything that precedes that it's it's pretty good with its pacing to be like these guys are just like they're literally racing like another country to build this thing to discover this thing there's that there's that scene where i forget who the professor is but like one of the other uh i think he's german boar he boar he like comes back from germany to los alamos and like gives the scientists like a little briefing on like what um heisenberg is up to and he's i forget what he says but the scientists at los alamos are basically like oh we just did that we just did whatever heisenberg is working on right now and like that's wrong like he took a wrong turn so that means they saw the uh, we're ahead they saw the sketch that born brought back with to show them and they're like oh this isn't a bomb this is a reactor so instead of like being something that like goes boom they're just like trying to figure out like a nuclear power plant exact pretty much Hmm. and so they're like oh yeah we're just we're way ahead of them we beat them yeah but i love that because it's like how much more ahead could you conceivably be like based on that like a, a few months or something it just seemed like the timescales that they were working within and like how it compared to their competition were so small. But then they realized that it's not small at all. In fact, they're like well ahead. Mm-hmm. And then like the country that they're racing against gets like drops out of the war is defeated. Mm-hmm. And then they're just left with this like huge bomb. Yeah. And a remaining access power. They're like, oh, I guess we should while yeah. we're here, might as well, you know. That was like the part of the trailer. It's like they won't they won't understand it until they until they use it. The darkest part of the movie, really. That scene in the auditorium, like after they complete the project and he's like giving that kind of like speech to his team is really cool. Where like where the the crowd is like cheering for him, he's giving like a speech under the basketball hoop. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really funny. I assume that that's at Los Alamos, like where the speech is happening. Yeah. So, like, all the people there are, like, Los Alamos residents. Right, right. So, scientists or families of scientists. He wasn't yeah, presenting at a high school pep rally. Like I, right. Like the fact it that like. it's under a basketball hoop, I think, is just really funny. Or interesting. It's just uh, the seriousness of, like, what he's talking about and the fact that he's basically, like, in a high school gym is weird. Right. You know? Yeah, that scene rocks. Like with all of the the different plays with like audio and the the visuals of whatever's in his mind, like the room like vibrating around him. There's like a part where people stand up to cheer, but you only hear kind of like the shuffling of them like in the bleachers, not actually them cheering. It's a really like trippy, trippy scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a cool audio trick. Where like you take a very loud moment and you selectively just uh like let go certain parts of the sound making process mm-hmm. and mute others. Yeah, very interesting. I have to believe that that's like I don't know. You ever been in like a super high stress or hyper focused state of mind, and your brain kind of works like that. Yeah. Like you sort of are able to filter things out. I used to think, you know, there's that old uh, stereotype of, you know, if like a man is like distracted and his like wife is calling him 
he just like can't hear it or he like tunes it out. I used to think that that was just a silly joke or like making fun of like how dumb like 80s and 90s sitcoms thought men were, but that's like a real thing. You can totally just like tune out like certain like levels of information, audio or otherwise. Like you can just remove it from your, uh, from your experience. And like when you're for your ears. Yeah. And then when you're in like the situation that he's in, where he just doomed humanity, like I imagine that that whatever that phenomenon is, is in full effect. It It must've been really surreal to be him. I can't even imagine. How did he die? Cancer. Cancer. Yeah. That's how the That's... book ends. It goes it takes you all the way through him just like deter- like basically he died like not good in his life. Like he had been, you know, his security clearance had been removed, his reputation had been tarnished, and then he died of lung cancer or something. Let me talk about the security clearance thing real quick, because that's like a huge part of like the third act. Like he's mm-hmm. on trial. Because the thing that the thing that's on trial is his security clearance. Right. Um, and I feel like myself, Grace said this, and I imagine other people don't quite understand like the stakes of that. I, I think a normal person watches like the trial scene and you're like, oh, okay, like he's being, he's on trial for being like a suspected communist. And like the end of that means he's like going to go to prison, which is bad. Yeah. But at the end, they're like, you, we think you're a loyal citizen, but you have been stripped of your security clearance. And the movie makes it very clear that that's like still like a very terrible outcome. Right. And I don't quite get why. If I had to guess, it's just like that he's no longer involved in like what is done or worked on with atomic weapons. Is that it? That's basically it. It's just that like, the government, like certain forces within the government, were trying really hard to assassinate his character and make it so that he wouldn't have any sway on policy because he was just, like I said, against the grain on what the government was wanting to do with nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And so that was their attempt to push him out, and it succeeded. Oh, but, as oh, as oh, an alternative oh, to uh, killing him, I I don't think they would have killed him, but uh, but you know it it worked in the end. But not super high stakes. I mean, that's really all it is. It's just like you're watching the process of him being defamed. I think that the uh, movie does not do a great job of explaining why that's important. I yeah. think that I think that the defamation part is clear, but I don't think it does a great job of explaining like why his defamation means anything. Because it's right. like he already invented the bomb, and then sort of the last like important moment, like physically with the bomb, is when they're shipping the bomb away when they put it in crates and it's on trucks and it's very clear at that point that he doesn't have any control at all anymore like Mm -hmm. that's the moment when he like loses control or sway or influence over the use of atomic weapons um according to the movie and it doesn't do a good job of explaining like what his security clearance has to do with anything after that it's like yeah. the government already has yeah. the bomb. They're using it. Like, who cares, like, about your security clearance? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel that criticism for sure. And, like, that's why I think I think that's a ding on the movie for just not handling that very well. What do you think of uh, the Florence Pugh role in this movie? Who is that? Florence Pugh is, uh, I forget her 
the historical character she is. She is Oppenheimer's mistress, the, uh-huh. psycho- the psychologist. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Jean Tatlock. Tatlock. That's it. But yeah, what do you think of her? Just think of that whole dynamic. It's interesting. Did you see the, the hand that, like, from the scene that she commits suicide in? Yeah. I saw it the... F- I thought it was the first time I saw it, I saw the hand and then I was watching for it the second time because I'd also listened to a different podcast where they had mentioned it because the first time I watched it, I saw the hand and definitely registered in my mind as like a different hand from hers, just, you know, that there was another person in the room. But there was so much like stimulus during that scene that I just kind of chalked it up to like my misunderstanding of something. I was like, oh, I saw a hand, but like, I don't know. Clearly she committed suicide. So I don't know what I saw. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, that's clearly a hand. Oh, yeah. There's Uh, a hand there. And who knows? You know, it's the whole movie is like from Oppenheimer's perspective. So that doesn't mean that she was actually killed. Just sort of like a little playful suggestion that she might have been killed. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. In, in first, real life, that's kind of that. That's like the. It's, it's it seems like she killed herself, but like people speculate that, yeah, she might have been killed by, you know, like Casey Affleck. Casey yeah. Affleck might have. It's a conspiracy. It's a, conspir- it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy for sure. It's a fun conspiracy, and not even like a unreasonable one at all, right? Because at yeah. the time, like Oppenheimer was like secretly communicating with her, right? Because of of the love affair, but mm-hmm. to the to a government that would just seem like you're communicating with a spy yeah you know this known communist and he seemed like at least in the movie he seems to understand a level of that because he like blames himself for her death whether it was suicide or not like he he seems like smart enough to understand that he's to blame either way the first time i saw the movie because he's like you know yeah out in the country and he's basically you know having a full-on meltdown over her death and he says to Kitty, his wife, that it's like, I did it. It was my fault. Like, I killed her or something, which is his way of saying it's his fault that he caused it. But for a moment, I was like, did he literally kill her? He was a third like, hand. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I quickly uh, dismissed that. But for like a moment, I, I thought there was some sort of like murder mystery subplot being introduced in the movie. Yeah. So in real life, when she died, her dad was the first person to like discover the scene. And apparently he there was like several hours that elapsed between him finding the body and him calling authorities. And okay. in that time, like he burned a bunch of documents in a fireplace. Interesting. I don't know. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Have you ever seen the Santa Claus? The Tim Allen Tim Allen movie? Yeah, I have. Do you remember Bernard from that movie? The elf, like the sort of teenage elf. I don't recollect. Here, I will show you a photo. This guy, not ringing any no, bells. Not ringing a bell, but yeah, why do you bring him up? Because he is the actor is David Crumholtz, who is this guy in Oppenheimer. Okay, which is literally insane to me. Um, there's, as you mentioned, like, there's so many, like, characters, like, historical characters in this movie, all played by, like, pretty, like, high-level actors. 
I heard somewhere that the strategy of like casting that many like recognizable actors in roles where they have so few lines, the idea is that like there's so many people like in the story that like you need people that you would recognize from just other things to just be in those roles so you can like keep the story straight like in your mind ah, i like that um you're like oh that's rami malik uh uh-huh. who has like four lines in the whole movie but like he recognize but your brain rami registers malik. that as like important person oh that character right. must be an important person right even if they're not even but if they can... don't have time to explain to you why they are or right. if they're not right but this guy in particular he just looks like if you go watch the santa claus sometime and just like jog your memory on who that guy is and then like think about him in this movie he just looks and sounds completely different and i even saw him as like an adult actor in another show called (laughs) numbers like like many years after santa claus Uh and him in this movie he just is like you can see his face in there but his voice is like I mean, he look he sounds like how he looks in this photo, just kind of this grumbly, like kind of larger man. And I, I don't understand like how someone can make that large of like a physical and auditory <laughs> change. Like I, it blew my mind when I figured out that that was Bernard from the Santa Claus. That's so funny because elves are supposed to be forever. Elves don't change. Did you identify this like the first watch or did you? No, I had to learn about it later because I Ah. literally didn't recognize him. There's a part in the movie talking about Florence Pugh again. Remember when he breaks up with her because he he gets involved with Emily Blunt's character, Kitty, and they're like talking about it and she's like crying and they're both sitting like on the ground next to her bed. And she's like, you knocked her up. And that's, it's implied, you know, that's the reason that he has to break up with her and the reason that Kitty has to divorce her husband. And she was like, you knocked her up. Like, that didn't take long. And Oppenheimer's response is, you can't keep a good man down. <laughs> Do you remember that? Not from, no, not from the movie, no. It's just a ludicrous line to say to someone, like, in that kind of moment. And also one that seems kind of out of place in like this movie maybe that's exactly what he said and maybe that's in the book but it just seemed like crazy out of left field be like yeah you knocked her up can't keep a good man down it's like what is this like a judd apatow movie for like three seconds he is um like the movie didn't dwell too much on it but like the book kind of goes into detail about how he was basically like a ladies man like he's a scoundrel he's like a hound dog a quote from somebody else describing Oppenheimer, I think of like one of his assistants was like, like, he's really a man of women. Like he loves their attention. He loves like getting their attention. Yeah. I mean, it, it dives into that a little bit. I mean, he it just, go, yeah, he like, yeah, just a scoundrel. That's like the, the best way I can describe it. He's, I don't know what it has to do with atomic physics, but okay. He's a womanizer. Well, I would imagine, I mean, they really like, let you know that he's exceedingly like arrogant in the movie, which kind of goes hand in hand with being like a womanizer. I think that when you reach a certain level of uh, pride and arrogance, especially like in his case where like the arrogance, I'm not going to say is like a warranted, but it is certainly like, it makes sense. Like he's Sorry, literally, yeah. he's literally like 
doing something that most people don't understand and is like is of equal importance like the he's like on this the edge of some technology that will change the world and he's like literally one of a handful of people who like understands why and how it works yeah so it makes sense that like uh, some arrogance would be bred out of that doesn't make it right but right i get it and i think being a womanizer just comes hand in hand if you're like i'm the literal smartest guy in the world so like i could probably just like have sex with anyone i want that scene where he's talking to kitty for the first time he's like at some party she's like can you explain quantum physics or something to me like it all seems very baffling and he like uses it as a moment to like flirt with her Mm -hmm. really hardcore and he says something about you know the laws of attraction between atoms you know and as soon as he said that when i watch it i'm like just shut the fuck up dude shut the (laughs) fuck up with like laws of attraction in this movie flirting with a woman yeah i thought that was the dumbest thing doesn't work at all dude i can tell i can vouch for that (laughs) you're 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 fucking spitting quantum mechanics at a bar it makes you look dumber it makes you makes you look lame yeah yeah when you're like i remember thinking that yeah i just thought it was so funny that it's in there as like a serious line (laughs) the laws of attraction between atoms is what keeps us our hands from going through one another get the fuck off the stage that's funny do you remember uh do, do you remember the scene from breaking bad uh it's like a flashback to the husband and wife their courtship and it's like a classroom setting and it's uh brian cranston doing the speech about the composition of a human body you're confused because uh, he's actually flirting with gretchen in that scene not his oh, wife yeah oh, okay. the the alternative love interest but yes i remember the scene he's like 30 percent oxygen 30 percent carbon and <laughs> whatever like the last one percent is like magic right like 0.001 percent it's uh the soul sexually charged magic yeah i hate that i hate (laughs) i hate seeing like uh scientists like flirt with one another using that kind of language Uh, sex is sex and it doesn't Uh, work (laughs) i like how uh matt damon there's like a scene when he first gets introduced he like walks into oppenheimer's classroom and he has his like lieutenant with him or whoever that is Mm -hmm. you know the other the other soldier who's with him yeah he walks right in he takes his uh uniform jacket off hands it to that lieutenant and he's just like have that dry cleaned and it's like kind of a laugh out loud like silly joke moment Mm -hmm. he's just like have that dry cleaned and like matt damon it's not like the last joke that he tells like there's several scenes where his dialogue is like written to be funny on purpose yeah like the like we'll have him killed I'm just kidding. Line. <laughs> and then he has the the near zero like Oppenheimer says like, "Oh, we, you know, discovered there's a remote possibility that we could ignite the atmosphere." And he's like, "How remote?" He's like, "The chances are near zero." And he's like, "Near zero." How? And that's like <laughs> that's like a big like call out in like the trailer cuz it's actually it's like funny. Like in the trailer it's sort of like played as a joke just as it uh-huh. is in the in the movie. It's like funny. They're like actually like funny dialogue scenes in an otherwise like pretty serious and important movie. 
That's funny. I was listening yeah. to the uh, Blank Check just released an episode on Oppenheimer. Yeah, I listened to that. Did you go all the way through it? Yeah, I think so. I'm an hour in, and they haven't fucking talked about the movie at all. Yeah, that's just that's just Blank Check. Though. That's what they do. But, but yeah, they remarked the same thing about how like Matt Damon's performance is like funny. Yeah. That's the most yeah. important thing in the goddamn world. It's like, yeah, it's just yeah, a little over the top. I uh, I want you to go watch this interview. I don't know who it is. You probably know who it is. There's this like physicist, Brian Cox. Oh, okay. Yeah, British guy. He looks kind of like a, a beetle to me. Like he looks like a physics beetle. Anyways, the point I was making is there is an interview with him, Brian Cox and Christopher Nolan. Brian Cox is interviewing Christopher Nolan about Oppenheimer. And it's really interesting to me, even someone who doesn't really understand uh, physics in the way that you do, watching like a real scientist talk to a guy who's like trying to make a movie that's like fascinated by and also loyal to science, but is also probably just as informed as I am, Christopher Nolan, which is to say not much. And I feel like the interview is, it's mostly like pretty pleasant, but at I sensed this weird uh, like tension with it where Christopher Nolan was like trying his best to not look stupid mm. in front of this guy. Yeah. Or like not. I can talk, see the risk of that. Talk about the movie in a way that like reflects poorly on like how the movie deals with the science. And like Brian Cox, you know, he does like a great job of being perfectly pleasant. They're both British guys. They both like keep it, you know, pretty low-key the whole time yeah. but i want you to go watch it just because i feel like most like even like reading in the comments like most people didn't pick up on that tension and maybe i was projecting a little bit but it just felt like i think christopher nolan is someone who values you know trying to be accurate and realistic and loyal to whatever the field is like in his movies but on some like level, he's very self-aware and knows that he's not maybe the best equipped to even do that. Sure. And I just, yeah. I just could like see a little bit of that where he was like literally having to talk to like a scientist about it, about the movie that he made that's very much about science. Yeah, yeah. I pulled it up here. It's I don't know about twenty minutes. Report back on that when you sure, get a chance. Sure. So I have one more question, and we can go into final thoughts. My question is, would you, as a scientist, have liked to have been recruited for Los Alamos and go live yeah. there for a few that's years? Such a, or... That's such a good question. I wrote down scientist camp in my notes because it, it kind of seems like a camp experience for all involved. And like, it really was. Like, it wasn't mm -hmm. normal that they built this new laboratory and moved everybody there for this job. Right, right. It, it's not like scientists were in the habit of just, like, being recruited <laughs> and leaving their lives and doing this kind of thing. It really was, like, it's such a unique effort Yeah, to just even make that thing happen. It sounds as cool as it sounds disruptive. I mean, in the movie, people quit because of that very thing. Yeah, but you know, yeah. in the same way where you get kind of excited when it's time to ship off to college or, 
you know, go be at summer camp for like a week. It, I would imagine that it might elicit something similar, but maybe even greater because you're working on like this project that's super important. Right, right. So would you do it? So would you do it? Um, yeah, absolutely, I would. I'm trying to come hmm. up to, for reasons for why I wouldn't, but I'm just like, yes. Which it seems like, like I, I would imagine such- if you were who you are now, in 1940 whatever you would obviously know who oppenheimer was like you would be aware of of him as a figure and so if he showed up like on your campus and was like hey do you want to come work on this thing you would just be like holy shit it's robert oppenheimer yes like i will i will do whatever you ask me to do right right i wonder how he appealed to the scientists that he recruited like, did he lean heavily on, like, this is the scientific project of our era, and you would be a fool to not participate just, like, from a purely intellectual point of view? Mm-hmm. Or did he lean on, like, this is a patriotic thing to do, we, you know, we're in the middle of this great war in Europe. Given um, the time period, it seems like country. either either thing could work. Right. I feel like... uh the patriotic thing like if you were to do the same experiment heist experiment now just like wouldn't work Mm -hmm. you'd be like i fucking hate america no exactly but yeah i think i would have i mean i was just so do you think that they were like well like morally justified at the time for working on it and whatnot i mean there's much that's been talked about on this subject of whether or not you know robert oppenheimer is a good person or a bad person for doing what he did yeah i mean that's like the whole thesis of the movie is just Uh exploring if he's like a good person or a bad person it's about him more than it's about anything else more about him than it is the bomb or the war or science um it's him as like a human being right right and he is autobiography autobiography so that's yeah that's you why. struggled with that word in a different auto. episode that I listened to recently. Yeah, auto auto bi- autobiography. Uh, bio- bio- biography. <laughs> yeah, autobiography. <laughs> but yeah, he's like arguably like one of the most morally challenged, ambiguous, ambiguous uh, people in history because he literally like destroyed the world. You know, that's the line from the movie. I am death. I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Um, I've seen that like line parodied so many times on social media now. It's like I don't even I don't know I can't even come up with one, but people twist it in silly ways. Uh huh. Um, but he's the movie's about him like dealing with that, dealing with how he basically doomed everyone. And I don't know if there's a straight answer, but I feel like the way he talked about it in the movie, and I assume the book, and have to believe this is how he felt in real life that it was like a necessary means to an end to prevent the other side from annihilating us. If there were ever like a group of people in the, in the history of the world who you wanted to like beat to creating like an ultimate weapon, it would probably be the Nazis. So in that way, I think it makes sense that he was, he, he had a way to justify it. He had a way to talk himself through why he was doing it and subsequently probably had a, a sales pitch for others um, like why it was a necessary thing. But, you know, in the end, everybody feels not okay about it. I think notably Oppenheimer never 
explicitly stated that he regretted doing what he did. I think that he was very particular and careful in the way that he talked about his work afterwards. Yeah, he was. That, that he never went to say like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It was always sort of more or less what I just said, that like it was it was what needed to be done given the circumstances at the time. Mm-hmm. I watched some uh, real life footage of interviews with him. Like one I watched recently was from like the 60s mm-hmm. earlier. And yeah, he's very like diplomatic with his answer. The interviewer asked him exactly that. He's like very directly like, how do you feel about like the moral justification of building this weapon of mass destruction? And he gave an answer that was just kind of forgettable. Yeah. I think I probably watched the exact same thing. The YouTube algorithm probably gave us the same interview. Okay. So um, let's, uh, let's talk about what we think of the movie overall. And let's bomb the movie with some scores. Okay. Okay. We'll drop some atomic weapons on this movie of accolades or lack thereof. Okay. I'll go first. Well, it's a story that's like very near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's like a very important story. And like, I think it's cool that the most important fucking story that's ever been told of all of our, do- of our <laughs> lives. And so I'm like, I, I'm, I'm glad that it was made. I'm glad that I watched it and everything, but I, I personally found it to be like very slow. And I thought like the editing and the pace of the movie was just creating. It was, it was like uncut gems. It was causing me uncut gems level of stress just from like <laughs> the aggressive pacing of the scenes and the editing. It has that like uh, Christopher Nolan sort of like puzzle movie nonlinear editing thing going on, but for no real good reason, in right. my opinion. Like right. in all right. his other movies, it serves sort of this like mystery function. And in this movie, it's just kind of there to make the movie seem more artful or interesting or more complicated than it actually is it was pretty distracting like i gotta be honest there's a scene towards the end where i I like literally looked over to stacy and i'm like this fucking score is so distracting like there's i like like the music there's like a good 20 minute period of the movie where it's just crescendoing towards like some ultimate end Mm mm-hmm but there's like a bunch of scenes within that period that's just like dialogue scenes where that mm-hmm. just has this like really ominous, strong soundtrack on it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I can't take this anymore. Yeah. Uh, it was long. It was hard to sit in that theater. But in any hours. case, I, I, I'm glad I watched it. And it was a cool, you know, it's, it's always great after you finish reading a book uh, to see the movie, just to see like, you know, how it looks on the screen. So overall, I'm going to give this movie a solid 7 out of 10. Okay, very cool. That is like an average of two scores. Like one of the scores is eight out of ten, the other one's like a six out of ten in like different categories. Very similar to the score I would give it. Um, Really quick, I don't want an explanation for this. I just want to hear it. First of all, give a give a uh, quantify your score. Yeah, yeah. So like uh, six and a half. (laughs) It just lowered. Like in the next, the last thirty seconds of this, the score got worse. (laughs) Yeah, five bombs out of ten, dude. F- fucking bombed. Okay, bombs. No, no, no. Five, five bombs. It went from seven to six and a half to five. Cool. I also want to hear just really quick, no explanation, how you would score Barbie. Such different movies. It's got to be higher because, like, at a certain point, it's just got to like reflect my overall enjoyment. Okay. 
So I'm just going to give it a, a, a 7.5. Okay. My Barbie score is a 6 out of 10. Okay. What's your... six, out of, 6 out of 10 Mojo Dojo uh, Casas or whatever they whatever Ken's thing is. The, the Spanish humor in that movie... Uh, played very nicely in Mexico. <laughs> when they, you know, the there Spanish were like several. Humor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the husband of that like main. Oh real, yeah, like, he's character. He's like using like Rosetta Stone or something to learn. Yeah. Spanish. Yeah. I'm not I really sure remember. why, but that that played nicely in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That is funny. Definitely targeted for uh like Latino audiences, like mm-hmm. wherever they may be. Oppenheimer for me was a an enjoyable experience. Um, I did enjoy the music. Um, I agree with you that it is like pretty bombastic for what's essentially a movie of like people just talking for mm-hmm. three hours. But I liked it. I mean, I think that Christopher Nolan is really trying really hard to like emphasize the ripple effects of what's going on in the movie like throughout history without being able to explicitly sort of talk directly about it to be like, Oh, you know, the outcome of this whole situation literally changed like the, the trajectory of human history in a way that nothing else, no other technological achievement has. And he says as much in interviews, even the script, does kind of address it directly at times where you know people overuse the word important but despite all of that i i think that i got i think i bought what christopher nolan was selling and i will say i'm not even like a big christopher nolan fanboy like i'm not a big fan of interstellar i don't think he's as profound of a filmmaker as some people think he is but he is undeniably a force like he can get stuff done that other people can't, which is the fact that this whole movie is like shot in IMAX and it's just dialogue scenes is like insane. But I think whatever he was selling in this movie, I bought and I was enjoying it. I enjoyed the music. The explosion was disappointingly small. I think I heard somewhere, uh, did you ever hear this? That there was talk at one point of Christopher Nolan asking like the government to de- to detonate a real atomic bomb to film you told me that okay i told you so did, you I, ever, did you ever look into that i didn't and then i didn't ever look into it but just saying it out loud it just sounds like hyperbole you know and it just sounds silly but i i, I feel like that was shared among other people people went into the movie being like this is going to be the craziest explosion i've ever seen in a movie and it's so far away far and away not that uh, so that was the most disappointing thing right off the bat is i wanted to go in to see like a visual spectacle and what i got was sort of like a deeper uh dive into history which i'm i'm there for like i that was also fun but it was not what was marketed to me nor anyone else who saw the movie i think um, so it loses it loses points for that i do like christopher nolan's obvious obsession with scientists as uh, these otherworldly beings, um, specifically the ones of the 40s working on nuclear weapons. Could have been shorter. I could have done with without the whole Strauss thing. But overall, um, good time. And I'm also going to, I also just give it some extra points because of the whole Barbenheimer phenomenon. Like, it 
it and Barbie played a part in something that I, as someone who loves going to the movies and hates the idea that the going to the movies is an activity that is slowly but surely dying. Mm-hmm. I love that two movies were able to like get people back to the movies. I haven't seen a theater as full like during the week during a matinee as I did with this movie, like since I worked at a movie theater in like 2009 or eight, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Um, it made me feel uh, really good, like being at the movies and like everyone having like an actual collective monoculture experience, which is just something that doesn't happen anymore. So I'm going to give Oppenheimer a whopping eight gadgets out of 10. Ooh, I like that. Cuz gadget was the, the it was like the P- device. It was like the PC word that they used to refer to the bomb cuz bomb mm-hmm. was like too dirty of a word. The gadget. I like that. All right, well said. Well said. Yeah, Thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for listening. Filmhole is produced by just us, myself and Raul. Our music is by W, that's underscore the word double and two U's. Get Filmhole wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, rate it. If you hate it, maybe don't. Thanks again. See you next time.